0: Welcome to Exit Point, a podcast about the advancement of base jumping and the exploration of its culture. I'm Matt Blank, producer and co-host. If you'd like to support this independent production, please visit our Buy Me A Coffee link in the description and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode... I sit down with John McAvoy and we dive into student progression and what it means to be on the path to mastery. John has devoted his life to the practice of bass jumping and the development of bass education. You may know him through his company, Bass Gear, or run into him on exit points around the world. We're lucky to be able to record with him here in Twin Falls, Idaho. So without further ado, let's get John on the track. What's going on in your life? Currently, I know that you're dealing with some health issues and you had been dealing with some health issues previously as well.
1: Yeah, so I went through uh, quite a um, roller coaster of stuff in 2020 and it kind of got pushed to the side for almost three years now and they've resurfaced recently. So it's time to to face the music, I guess, is the best way of saying it. Well, wow, it's a very Irish explanation of <laughs> a very serious medical condition. <sighs>
0: Can you give us a little bit more about uh, the details?
1: Yeah. So I guess in 2020, I had a stroke and during the litany of scans that I had following that to try to figure out the the root cause of it, they found a hole in my heart, which was what they determined to be the, the cause of it. The idea is that I had a blood clot in my leg or somewhere in my body and that, um, passed up through everything, went through the hole of my heart and into my brain and caused the stroke. And during that the process of all the scans and everything I was getting, they also found a tumor in my neck, which was completely unrelated, super rare type of tumor. It's called a, a carotid body tumor or a paraganglioma is the technical term for it. And um, yeah, so in the I fully recovered from the stroke. I had a procedure to have the hole in my heart fixed and made a full recovery from that. And then at the time, I had consulted with several surgeons in different parts of the country, and I went to NIH, and they had offered, because my condition was so rare for someone of my age, they offered to give me free treatment if I agreed to be a part of a, a study with it. So went through all of that, and then ended up, I was trying to figure out what to do. Like, should I have surgery and have it removed? Should I get radiation? Should I wait? All of this kind of stuff. And one of the surgeons I had consulted with in New Jersey recommended that I don't do anything for the time being. His idea towards it was, look, you, you're you young, you're fit, you're healthy, you recovered from the stroke, which puts you in a, a very small percentile of people that recover with no residual after effects whatsoever. Like even I went to a neurologist like two months after it happened and he was like looking at your scans and seeing how you are now, I would have no idea it was the same person. Like you're like blessed is kind of the 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 best term to uh describe it but the surgeon was like you've recovered from that your heart's good the only thing i have to offer you from removing this right now is a worse quality of life so he was kind of like let's just keep an eye on it enjoy enjoy the good health while you have it and we'll get scans on it every six months and then when the time comes for it to be tackled we'll tackle it and uh, that time has arrived so the most recent scan I had showed that it was after uh getting like a half inch bigger since the the last scan so
0: so going back to the first uh health concern I know that took you out of base jumping for a little while uh can you describe what the prognosis is currently
1: with um with the, the yeah the tumor Yeah so the 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 main reason I was um on the shelf so to speak so after the stroke And then I had the, they were like, you need to get your, well, when we were trying to figure out what to do with the tumor, they said, you have to get everything, uh, buttoned up and solidified with your heart before they even look at doing anything. So I was on the shelf for about four months recovering from that. And then the discussions kind of started with the, uh, with the tumor surgeons.
0: How's that changed your outlook on life going through all of the serious medical, um,
1: stuff? It definitely... Definitely made me question things a lot because even even in something like BASE jumping, where death is kind of always at the forefront of your mind in some capacity, um, whether you're thinking about it yourself or dealing with it, uh, where you have friends and acquaintances and people you don't even know, but just doing the activity, they're constantly getting hurt, const- constantly dying. It's something that you want constant, always something that I'm always thinking about. But in a way, it kind of makes it easier to deal with because you're making a conscious decision to continue to walk forward with it. You say, oh, I've accepted that this is a consequence of it, and I'm making the decision that if it happens, it's by my own hand. But it was very difficult to deal with something that you almost just get slapped across the face with, and it just came out of nowhere, this random health thing. So, in the And in the grand scheme of things, I was only not jumping for four months. But because my entire life revolves around it, I was going through a lot of stuff of, Can I exist without it? Like, has it become such a part of me that I need it? That kind of way. So, um, and then on the tail end of it, uh, the answer to that question was I can, like I was put on the shelf. I started getting really into yoga and meditation and just being healthy and trying to focus on that side of things. And then towards the tail end of it, when jumping was starting to look like I was ready to come back to it, I started having a lot of like, oh fuck, like I just dodged a bullet with all this health stuff. If I go back and I have a cliff strike next week, like I'm a fucking asshole, (laughs) you know? And that was kind of on the back end of seeing how my wife responded to the whole thing and my family and all of the outpouring of support. I was very public when I went through all of this. I'm quite a introverted, like reserved person in general, but because this whole scenario was quite rare and particularly I was told at that time that these types of tumors there's only one in a million people get them a year so it's very very unusual and there's very little um, information on them on the internet so I was kind of like I want to document this for the next person that's coming behind me and so that there's something else for someone else to see so it was very kind of I was putting myself in a very vulnerable position by putting myself out there and the outpouring of support i received from around the world was just blew me away like i had dude i had a a girl message me that i made out with once behind the swimming pool in high school when i was like 15 years old like asking if i was okay like things like that you know and i've lived in ireland and new zealand and boston prior to moving here and traveled to different places and i've been in lots of different communities whether it was sports i was playing or martial arts or skating or um Lots of like different communities that I've had like influence on. I ran a gym in Boston for six years and had hundreds of clients like throughout that period of time. So I had so much support come forward for me that that definitely made me question things with pace jumping when the time was coming to get back into it as being like, fuck, like what are all these people going to think if I, I just made it through all of this stuff, like relatively unscathed and then i'm making a decision to put myself in a scenario like that where it could all just end in a, in a heartbeat so yeah and
0: i commonly see people that go through uh, medical concerns like that put a premium on the rest of their life and cut out things that are a little more dangerous because they have come so close to losing everything yeah so what drove your decision to continue base jumping
1: i guess i I guess my approach to base jumping kind of gave me a lot of confidence in how i was going back and i know that you can't be 100 percent safe all the time and you can't um make it not risky but i i put certain parameters on myself as being oh i'm not going to free fall things that are under this height anymore and maybe i won't do triple flips i'll just focus on doing doubles or nice singles or I kind of put certain parameters on myself to limit my level of risk that I was taking and considering I'd been doing it so long at that point, I felt like that I could um, like put those bumpers in place to kind of keep myself in check and continue to move forward with the thing that I love and the thing that I've essentially spent almost the last decade focused on. So... Yeah, I don't feel like it was an addictive need that pulled me back or anything like that. It's just kind of, yeah, I guess it has become a part of me and it's, uh, yeah, I didn't have any, I guess like when you're constantly back and forth between questioning things and trying to figure out if things are worth it or not, there's always the voice in your mind that tells you what you want. And ultimately going back into it was what I wanted. So that was the, the choice that I made.
0: Can you give us a little bit about why Base jumping is what you want. Why base jump?
1: I know it's such a difficult. It's such a difficult question, and I've been trying to answer that question for a little bit over nine years now, and I still don't have a nice, articulate way of explaining it, especially to people that don't do it. And I'm kind of pulled back to this quote that I had seen in a skydiving book years ago that said something to the effect that. For those that jump, no explanation is necessary, and for those that don't, none is possible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, then let's get into how you arrived at base jumping, and maybe you can tell us what inspired you to get into base jumping.
1: I kind of, it feels like I went into it fairly naturally, like it just gradually got exposed to me when I was skydiving. and. So I grew up in Ireland. If uh, anybody doesn't know that, <laughs> know that by now. And in in Ireland, it's not like it's a third world country or anything, but there's just not a lot of opportunity for um, fringe activities. I would say the things that you can do there are like soccer, football, hurling, rugby, like just these normal, normal, everyday kind of activities. So. Even myself and my friends were skaters growing up and we were like the outcasts of society, like wearing double XL pants with our ass sagging out and <laughs> things like that, you know? So things like skydiving are just not on your radar whatsoever. And I had seen it on TV here and there, but it was never, it's not as in your face, say, as in the US when you, every time you drive past a major city, there's a billboard outside. It's saying 1-800-SKYDIVE and it's just so much more accessible for things like that. So growing up there... It just wasn't on my radar at all and i was live i lived in new zealand for a couple of years and i just went on a tandem skydive as one of those things that you do to kind as like a bucket list thing i was like oh this would be this would be cool like i like doing things that are kind of outside of the norm and it just completely blew my mind open afterwards like i couldn't i remember thinking like i cannot believe that that is legal <laughs> <laughs> you you're allowed to get on the plane, go up in the sky and just jump out the door. Like it was just the the most foreign, foreign idea to me ever. And then after we had landed and I was chatting with the tandem instructor, I was just so jazzed up and I was like, I have to do that again. Like, how do I do that again? And he explained to me, Oh, you can just like pay this money and take this course and you can get your license. And same thing again. My mind just like couldn't wrap my head around the idea of it because my in my ignorance, I thought that to be a skydiver, you had to be a stuntman, and you go through years of this, these progressions and training and int- intensive schedules and everything. And I had no idea, like it was all these dude, like the people who were doing it were just dudes living in their cars behind the behind the drop zone, you know. So that kind of started the process with that, and I immediately signed up for AFF. And I got limited by resources at that time because I was just working in a gym, making minimum wage. I was had a, a motorcycle as transport. The drop zone was an hour and a half away. So um, I didn't have a lot of money, didn't have a lot of time. I had j- kind of just started a personal training business that was starting to, to take off. And I was doing a lot of work with clients on weekends at the time then. So I think at that time, Period. I only did four AFF jumps, and then it just got shelved for a few years. And it wasn't until I had moved to the US and fast forward, like lots of things happening, but I had moved to the US, started a started a, a fitness business when I got here, and turned that into a gym. And then a few years into that, I was making really good money. I was making my own schedule. And it was one of those things that I was always on the computer, like researching where's the closest drop zone and what does their AFF program look like and looking at videos of all the different AFF jumps and what you have to complete on each one to actually get your license. And when when it made more sense, I guess, I kind of just went into it full on. And I was at the point where I was able to pay upfront for the whole thing. My first rig was a brand new custom, everything which wasn't great because the canopy was way too big for me after <laughs> yeah after i'd jumps. gotten my license yeah. yeah but it started like that so then um during that period of time base jumping kind of started to come on my radar i think i saw it was while i was watching aff jumps on youtube there was uh, a Turbulenza kl tower video i think it was from 2013 but i'm not 100 percent sure And the same kind of situation that happened is just my mind was melted watching that stuff, just seeing these guys doing these crazy spins and flips off this giant tower and flying away from them. And I, I, the thought I was trying to put myself in their shoes and imagining what that would feel like and just couldn't even, and I was at the time I was so terrified of skydiving and Going up in the plane and just getting out the door. And that that whole overcoming the fear just associated with that started to happen again. And there was this weird pull towards it. So there was um a guy I had seen at the drop zone who was wearing an apex base hoodie. His name was Ty Crum. And I approached him and just kind of started, out, Oh, are you a base jumper? And started asking him questions. And in my mind, I was like, oh, that might be a cool thing to do someday. And friended him on Facebook and we would just communicate every now and again and I'd see him at the drop zone and we'd just chit chat and every now and again he would tell me about an antenna jump that they had done and I thought it was like hearing like a bank robbery, the um, the way that he would explain it and how cool it sounded and just so foreign. I was like, What, wow, you guys just go out and like climb these towers and like jump off them? And he was like, yeah, you know, and he gave me, eventually I think he was either getting frustrated with my questions Couldn't answer my questions or just kind of decided it was time for me, but he gave me a copy of The Great Book of Bass and read that cover to cover. So you're the one that did that? (laughs) Yeah, I'm the one. (laughs) I'm the one person that's read that book. Cover to cover.
0: Uh, Scotty Bob's like, I think uh, quoted on the back of it is saying like, everyone should read this book, but I haven't or something like
1: that. (laughs) It's actually very, I mean, it's very surprising to me how many people actually have not read it that are experienced jumpers because it's like, it's the one piece of text that we actually have that was written for us. And for whatever reason, people. Why? Why do you think that is? I have no idea. Maybe they just don't like to read, or I don't know.
0: I see, uh, uh, Gerdes get frustrated uh, with uh, a lot of us when, like, we ask him questions that are literally answered in the book. Yeah, he's, he's like, like oh, you I haven't don't... read that section.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, he's like, oh, that's on page thirty-six. <laughs> yeah, come on.
0: Do I have to repeat it, or can <laughs> you just look it up? <laughs>
1: Yeah. So even on the, on one of the opening pages in that there was a description of base jumping and it said, it was like a disclaimer for the book, I think. And it said something like, base jumping is an extremely dangerous activity. It's so dangerous that we recommend you don't do it. And when I read that sentence, I was just like, I want to fucking do that. And I couldn't, I still can't explain what the desire is to, to kind of lean into things that terrify you. Because I would, I was at that time then when it had gotten to that point, I was watching more videos and digging into YouTube a little bit more about, uh, for what was available. And I would, I would be like, I had a, a big, I like a Mac, uh, an iMac that I would watch with headphones on, full screen videos. And I would, my palms would be sweating, like watching these videos, just envisioning that someday I might be doing something like that. I'm like, fuck, I could be doing that someday, but, but I'm not, I don't have to do it now. And trying to like pat myself on the back that I was still okay, you know, so So, yeah, I mean, I guess that was um, fast forward again a little bit. I had about 180 jumps, uh, skydives at that time. And the guy, and by this time I had become friends with with the local crew and they had actually started asking if I would like to come out and ground crew for them on certain jumps. So I was coming out watching them jump. I would drive the car. I would hang out with them and have a beer afterwards, just asking questions about them and just kind of getting exposed to it a little bit more. And all the while I was like, is this something I really want to do? do I want to do it? And I remember being, uh, the first time I ground crewed for them, it was at night on this, um, it was like a 300 foot antenna and I was standing in the LZ and they all left with their bags and doing their little routines and everything. And just standing there super quiet, starry night, just thinking to myself, like, is that, is this what I want to do? Like, it's so quiet and so dead and no noise around. And then I was just fantasizing about what it feels like to be on the ladder. And I want to be and I want to feel the steel against my hands. I want to be up on top and like going through our systems and gear checks and getting ready for for battle basically in a sense like that, like this war with yourself of overcoming that fear and trying to lean into being courageous, I guess, in the in the sense of some in the in the when something is just everything in your body is telling you not to do something, but you're still continuing to walk forward. Like there's so much fulfillment and value in things like that, I feel. And that's the side of it that I was attracted to. I was never like, oh, the adrenaline and awesome, send it, bro. Like I've never kind of been like that. It's always just been about the the overcoming things within yourself.
0: Yeah, that's a, a, a large part of it for a lot of people. And also there's uh, quite a bit of theory out there about how uh, certain individuals are trended towards dangerous activities like this because our society has fewer and fewer of those available. Yeah. And so like inherently there are a certain amount of us that trend towards hunting and doing dangerous things that like our, our, you know, primal mind wants to experience and base jumping gives us that outlet. Yeah. So what, at what point did it, you reinforce your desire to base jump? Cause I, I agree with you. A lot of people um, would, you know, have a desire to do it, but Uh, I, I tend to think that like, until you're actually out there doing it, you don't know if it's for you or not.
1: Yeah. Um, so to build on that a little bit, I had, at the time I had about 180 skydives. The, the guy who I had friended originally was a packer at the drop zone. So he was always kind of at the, like close to the LZ and he was seeing me land essentially. And he said, I've been watching your landings a lot. They're starting to look good. We think you're ready. Like if you want to take the next step. And I was supposed to come out to Twin and do kind of a traditional mentorship with um, Rich Fowler, which was the main guy back then, like the most experienced guy in the area. And it fell through, It fell, I couldn't come out with them because I had a, a cousin's wedding that I had to go to that was unfortunately on the same weekend. So then I had, I signed up for a course and came out and took a, an FJC and then went back. And I was still mentoring under them, but um, I came out and took a course initially. And that was, I guess the reinforcement from it came as being like a lot of times I feel like on a lot of base jumps, you go through so much mental preparation and visualization about what you're going to do that by the time you actually get to the edge, everything kind of disappears and you're just really zoned in on the moment because you've gone through everything already. And in the weeks and days leading up to it, you're like, what if it doesn't open and what if I fall off the edge? and what if this happens? What if that happens? But after you've kind of thought through all of those scenarios, I feel like once you actually get to the point of you're about to do it, all of that stuff kind of fades away and you can just perform in the moment. So so yeah, I remember landing after the first one. My first one was a uh, jump here off the bridge and legs were shaking. And I think I actually have a video, a selfie video of myself just being like, that was amazing. I can't wait to do it again. And I was just staring back up at the bridge and like my legs are shaking and I can't even process it. And something something that now seems so simple and so basic, but at that point in time, it was the, the craziest thing that I've ever done. And even now years on, I love seeing that in new people as well, because it's it's very refreshing to to share in that with, with people and to be a part of other people's kind of journeys now. So, And I know that your first jump didn't go exactly according to plan but you enjoyed it can you take us through that yeah absolutely so the uh, so I had no reference so even in the moment I remember um the I had another guy who was about to do his first jump PCA me for my first jump and he completely dropped me and I ended up having like a two and a half second delay and I just remember like smiling after I exit (laughs) <laughs> smiling all the way down and I was like well if this is the end like it's happening with a smile on my face you know <laughs> and then after it wasn't until afterwards I had fully understood what had happened they were like oh he fully dropped you and because I had no reference for it I wasn't sure that there was part of me that was just like oh I feel like I should have the the parachute above my head now but I don't so let's just enjoy the ride <laughs> you know so <laughs> Immediate acceptance of your fate <laughs> Yeah completely so
0: <laughs> so yeah and leading to a cathartic experience at the end, where you're joyous and looking up at the bridge and hooked at that point.
1: Yeah, and the the thing, uh, something that I constantly tell new people, especially, is I love the the contrast of standing on the bridge and it's really noisy and like the bridge shakes as trucks go by and there might be a ton of people standing and like people will shout from cars and everything like that, and then the transition from a place like that. So once your feet get on the ground and it's birds chirping and water flowing and the serenity of being inside the magic valley, you know, it's almost like you're teleporting into a different world. And, um, I constantly keep that mindset myself and I still kind of look on jumping with very kind of outsider's eyes, so to speak. And I, um very conscious of trying to instill that in people that are uh, that are new as well, as to just fully appreciate like how special this experience is, you know, and it doesn't matter that you're at step one of 50 that you want to accomplish, but just like this is really special and it's really important to, to take it in. And I try to never take a, a jump for granted. And some of that may have become more prevalent in the last few years when I had a lot of the the health stuff go on because it gave me a true appreciation for the beauty and uniqueness of what we actually get to do almost on a daily basis now. So, so yeah, I'm.
0: Yeah. And a lot of people describe leaving everything from society behind on the rail and you're right. Like at the bridge, that's quite literal. You know, you leave this cacophony of society behind for the peace and tranquility of this pretty beautiful Valley. Yeah. Um, (laughs) so after your first jump, what was your acceleration like into the sport? What was your progression like from there? Did you jump both feet all the way in, or uh, did you take a more measured approach, like in skydiving?
1: Um, I would say I wanted to jump into it full force, one hundred percent. But I was limited because at this time, like I was, I was running a business and I had employees and I had a lot of, I had a lot of responsibilities. But the pull to it was so strong that my responsibilities started, like I started putting in less and less effort to them and they started suffering as a, as a result of it. And like I said before, I was, I was in a good position financially. I was running a business. I had lots of free time because I was making the schedule myself. So the, the flow of it went, came here, took a course, went home for three months, did a couple of antenna jumps during that time, came back, took another course, went home for three months, same thing, came back, took another course, and then each time that i came out here i started to meet more and more people who were who seemed to be happier with having much less than all of say the things that i had on paper back home and the pull to that world i was just like hey i actually want to i want to live this life i want to know what it's like to be a base jumper i don't want base jumping to just be this thing that i do like i want to get the full experience and part of me was thinking that if i don't do it i'm going to regret it for the rest of my life and I feel like a lot of the guys in the crew that I was jumping with back in Boston, they were quite content with having it be a part of their life. And it was just this thing that they did on the side as, say, a hobby. That And they got a lot of fulfillment and enjoyment out of it. And that's an important thing to recognize as well as being, it like whatever way you want to approach it or you want to do it, that's totally fine. But for me, I wanted the the full immersion with it. So it took about a year and a half, but I gradually trained all my staff to do, to do all the jobs that I was doing. So I almost made myself ups, obsolete to a point. And yeah, and then the day came where I sold everything, put the few belongings that I kept into my minivan, and I just drove to Twin Falls and started started fresh from from zero. So full cutaway, basically. Full cut, cutaway, yeah. Stripped away all the things that
0: were weighing you down and a total move for freedom.
1: Yeah, and it was kind of, um, I was... It was less scary for me to do stuff like that because originally when i had left ireland i kind of did the same thing when i was 22 i bought a one-way ticket to new zealand and i was just like i'm out like there's more to the world i want to go go live it you know and then i was living in new zealand and i had started to build up a life over there getting everything set i was working on permanent residency and i did the same thing like lit, lit a match see you later like and then moved to the us and then started fresh again so it was kind of I was I had some experience with having done it before so I wasn't as terrified because I kind of had the mindset of this might work out if it doesn't I'll, I'll figure I'll figure out what happens you know so so yeah full cutaway just came here with nothing didn't know didn't know much I was base jumping a year and a half at that point I was still really really fresh I just knew that I I wanted to do it for an extended period of time and I'm still here and that was 8 years ago so
0: Do you have any short advice for people who are looking at that full cutaway path And still wanting to hedge their bets or wanting, you know, some assurance that they're going to be okay if it all doesn't work out. Because I I know a lot of people are uh, wanting to do something like that, but, you know, they, they don't for a long time because, you know, there's no, well, there's no guarantee, you know, and you've been successful now twice at doing that. Is there anything that you can offer to somebody who's considering it.
1: Yeah, I think it depends on the it, a lot of it can depend on the on the person because even though even though I'm like, oh, I started fresh with nothing, I was also in positions where I had some buffer time. So, I had sold my gym, sold a lot of the things, so I was comfortable for at least a year. So, I had enough money in the bank that I was like, I can have fun for a while and I don't have to figure anything out for at least 12 months. So, that gave me some buffer And I don't know, because in in many ways, I would say that I'm quite calculated and cautious with stuff, but then I have done certain things that are quite risky with stuff like that, like moving countries and just completely restarting life when there's a very safe blanket over here in the corner and you have everything set, you know, and you have a house and a business and like you're paying your taxes and all things like that set up. So for people that are looking to do it, I would structure it in a way that it's not a case of literally I got home packed a suitcase and left like I was very methodical in how I set things up and I was get, going on longer and longer trips to see if it was in fact something that I actually wanted to continue to do because I mean with something like base jumping it's crazy risk like there's no it's not like there's jobs everywhere that you can work in base jumping or or anything like that you kind of have to create your own opportunities so um in ways like that if you can set your job up like it's it's going to be a remote gig that you can still make money and still do it but yeah I mean life is really short and you can have things that happen that will just completely mess up your plans and um I think there was like a, a Jim Carrey speech or something where he was like you can you can fail at something you don't want so you may as well try what you actually do want so to people that are thinking about um, changing their life or doing something that they keep putting off. I would say, just give it a shot, man. Like what's, what's the worst that can happen.
0: Yeah. Back to square one and trying another thing, yeah. but eventually one of them is going to succeed.
1: Yeah. And when I uh, a real t- tipping point, I guess what my mindset towards that was, I actually did, um, I did a, a two-year course in architectural drafting when I finished high school. And then I got a job working in a, um, engineering office and, My job was super basic, like I would get layouts of floor plans of hotels and uh, apartment buildings and my job on AutoCAD was to basically draw red and blue lines from the boiler, like through the corridor into where the sinks were and like little things like that. We just get schematics of floor plans and we did the same thing with ventilation and everything. And I was 22 at the time and there was uh, another kid who was, well, a kid, he was 35 and all he ever did was complain about his life. He was bitching about his wife, about his mortgage payments, his responsibilities, his retirement account and i remember sitting there thinking like this guy is like over 10 years older than me and he's doing the ex- he was doing the exact same job as me except he had a little bit more responsibility so my thought process was that if the if that's where i'm headed like if the end result is being miserable i'm going to go do something else for a while and i can come back and be miserable later and that was that was a huge thing of i started that was actually when i was 22 and i was thinking like oh, I don't want to live here in in Ireland. I want to go and see the world. And that was kind of part of the reason I uh, decided to get a visa for New Zealand and just picked up and left. And I was like, I'm going to go do this and then I can come back later if, uh, if it doesn't work out. So along the lines of base jumping again, was there anything about
0: base jumping that gave you the resolve to move for full immersion rather than stay in your current spot, comfortable, and be a weekend-based jumper,
1: say? Yeah. So there was there was the pull of just wanting the experience of it. And to to I was just not getting enough of it, I feel like. Like living in Boston, we were lucky to get... Like if we got three jumps in a month, it would be a good month. And there was very difficult setups with it in terms of they were all at night, they were all in places that you're not supposed to be, and they were very wind-specific. And at the end of like, I was working long hours and I had other responsibilities at home. So it was just very difficult. And I have a lot of respect for East Coast jumpers specifically that are, that put in the work to stay current because there's lots of effort involved with it. And coming out to the bridge, it was like Disneyland basically, you can jump every day and this is awesome (laughs) and it's relatively safe and it's the, it's the training ground of the country, you know, and people come from all over the world to, to learn how to do it here. So that gave me a huge level of like, whenever I get into something, I'm kind of all or nothing with it. And I wanted to be good at it. So when I was out here on one of my earlier trips, I had about 30 jumps and uh, went out to jump a cliff that's here in town. And it was my first running stowed cliff jump. And um, I was very amped up like early on in base jumping. I wouldn't say that I was necessarily like r- sketchy or doing things that were beyond my ability level so to speak but I was definitely moving quickly I was kind of like I was doing the things that you're supposed to do but I was moving through them very quickly and essentially kind of just checking boxes so to speak and uh, on this particular jump we got there it was just me and one other guy jumping and I was just really amped I was just I'm going first like I'm gonna do this fuck yeah like really amped up about it and when I would the exit point in question is a little bit awkward. You kind of take a step down, then a couple of steps up, and then it kind of flattens a little bit and there's a big crack in the middle. And I didn't kind of plan my footing very well. And as I was running off, my launch foot completely missed the edge of the cliff. So <laughs> step in the air. Dude, like yeah, the, the foot that I was I, the foot that I was planning on leaving with, I think just the 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 end, the tail end of my heel touched it, and I was just in nothing. So yeah, just fully went completely on my side. I'm in free fall on my side, so I pitch immediately. End up having a, a full 180 towards the wall. Managed to back it up, turned it around, landed in the like this particular jump. There's an island in the middle of the river. It's actually quite a, a cool experience for a jump because you land on this island. You jump with a trash bag, put all your gear in the trash bag, swim across the river, and then there's no real uh, marked trail on the way out. You have to like bushwhack and climb through stuff to get out. But I ended up getting away with it. And I've gone through so much mental battle like with, the, with thinking about that particular jump. So this was my 36th base jump. And there was a heavy part of me saying I had no business being in that situation, given the amount of experience that I had. But I had also, the previous couple of days leading up to that, I was doing avoidance drills at the bridge, packed 180s, floaters, had put an extra brake setting on my canopy to slow it down a little bit. So when when this situation actually happened, like I remember being in free fall, everything happened in completely slow motion. I was thinking, I'm having a 180. I'm having a 180, like hands for the risers. And I was just waiting for it. And at the time, I actually used double risers as the the correction for that. So I hammered on both rears, stalled the canopy, backed up from the wall, let one up, turned the canopy away, let the other up, popped toggles, and then flew the pattern. And when you watch it, and I have the video, it's it's on YouTube, but it's unlisted, and I'm happy to share it with anybody that would like to see it. But um, when it happened, it almost felt like it was choreographed because even in those two seconds that I had in free fall, it felt like I had so much time to get ready for what I needed to do. And having done those drills the days before, I had built that mindset of when you expect it, and then it happens, and you're able to execute. So that just kind of, and I think in the the Tension Knot episode that you guys had with um, Will and Matt recently. Will had said something like, "You you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to the level of your training. It was something like that. So the fact that I had ingrained some level of muscle memory in myself the few days before allowed me to execute when I was presented with that situation. And I mean, the whole fuck up is... I was an idiot and I was not in a good state of mind and I didn't plan my where I was running. And you think of how many times have you ran off cliffs into water or into a swimming pool and never slipped or never had anything like that. And the one time you have a fucking parachute on your back, you just completely mess it up. And it shook me really hard. Like That was a, a huge gut check for me to um, start to check my mentality on everything and not necessarily just the skills that I needed to learn in order to keep myself safe and to continue doing it, but how my mind was associated with everything so that really um changed my mindset towards stuff and i was like holy fuck like if i'm going to actually do this properly i need to actually fully commit to it and to to kind of finish the tail end of that story um so i went went back repacked my reg and i was leaving town the next day and i couldn't couldn't get it out of my mind it was just really bothering me so i went back out the following morning jumped the cliff again without issue and I vowed never to jump that exit ever again. <laughs> I was like, that was a little bit too spicy. Like, that was too close. Like, the Reaper was, came for me and I said, not today. And then I overcame it by doing it again the following day. And then six weeks later, um, Adam Rubin actually went in on the same jump. And I had, like, nightmares about that almost because it it made it so real to me that I had succeed, narrowly succeeded and threaded the needle in getting out of this particular situation. And there was another guy who had triple D experience that I had, and he was presented with the same situation. And his scenario was he actually took a deeper, that that particular jump has two ledge systems as um, it comes down the wall. And he took a deeper delay than I did, had a 180, successfully avoided it with single riser. And then during the recovery surge of the canopy, his body actually hit the lower, um, the lower ledge and he tumbled down. And, uh, Yeah, one of the guys that was on site did CPR for like 40 minutes and he was pronounced dead on scene, but that shook me so much like a month and a half later. And I was at this infancy stage of, I have 36 base jumps and I just had something like that so real and really gave me a glimpse of what's actually there when things go wrong that... Yeah, I was just like needed to change the way I approached the things and just kind of take a step back and just be like, I'm just going to do easier jumps until I'm like 100% competent with them. And I can actually, when the next time that I reapproach a cliff or a jump like that, I'm going to make sure that my mind is in check, as well as having the skills and all of the other things that you need to, to be there.
0: So after hearing that Adam went in, was there any part of you that thought that could have been me? 100%.
1: Yeah. That was the, that was the main thing in my mind, I would say.
0: And so maybe we have to adjust the statement even further from, you know, we default to our level of training because some people don't have the capacity to even do that when they're facing a wall like that and death is imminent.
1: Yeah. And that was a case of if you were to, I don't have the video myself, but I've seen it multiple times and watching it, he did everything correctly. Like, he had a nice delay, he had a good exit, he had a nice delay, he was really fast on the reaction, and he just didn't make it out. And that's kind of another thing that comes into bass jumping, is you can actually do everything right, and you can still get fucked on the bottom end. And that's a, a really scary thing to, to be able to understand and continue to move forward with it. Because most of the time, everything's going to be fine. But it's that 1% of the time that, that can really bite you. and.
0: So let's go back to a statement that you made about this jump saying uh, you don't know if you belonged there. You know, after all of this, after you look back, uh, do you believe that even with your training, you didn't belong there? Was there something else that was missing uh, that would, uh, you know, basically allow you to jump that with more confidence
1: knowing that you do belong there? In part, like, honestly, Part of the reason I was there was because it was actually during a a course I was taking and they were like, we're going to go and do this jump. It wasn't a case of something that I had planned and spoke spoke to a bunch of buddies about or anything like that. It was like I was taken there and like somebody took the leash off my neck and just allowed me to do it, you know, and I feel like um, that was a huge thing to do with it as well ultimately like you make, you all make your own decisions in it, but I was very chomping at the bit. That's a a good way of explaining it. I guess Is just felt like I was leashed and I just needed to be told what, where I could do it, you know, and be like the exit points over there. And I would just run at it, you know, that, that kind of a, that kind of a way. So. Did you lose a little trust for the community at large after uh,
0: being taken to an object like that? And then after all of this
1: uh, I didn't down. at the t- at the time. I didn't at all. Like I might look at it now with a different set of eyes, but at the time, I was like, I made the decision. I fucked up because ultimately it was my my error with it. You know, like don't like what do you like? Yeah. <laughs> make sure you push off the push off the edge. You know, that was the uh, the ultimate thing. And it's it's a crazy thing because with experiences like that is that was something that happened so long ago, and I can still remember every aspect of it so vividly. And I would never want it to happen again, but I wouldn't give the experience back at the same time because I feel like I've gotten so much out of it, and uh, and yeah, and it still continues to be a thing that I think about quite often.
0: Totally, you know, hearing that incident, um, I I think of the movie Dodgeball. Uh, where the guy is training them to dodge balls by throwing wrenches at them. Like, if you <laughs> yeah. can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's like, all right, you have this training. and then <clears throat> in order to further the training, it was like, all right, let's take this into the most real environment possible, low cliff. You, know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can turn it around. If you can turn around on the bridge, you can turn around doing this sketchy low cliff. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of things in in base, like you always think about the what ifs. and there's a lot of there's a big part of me that thinks what if that didn't happen like where would i have ended up if i had just continued on that trajectory that i was on of constantly pushing and um not necessarily checking myself like things could have ended up way worse and i think yeah that huge gut check so early on was a huge help to me in moving forward and getting myself to to be more centered and it, it honestly as well like that almost happening and i i almost die I have the situation or get mangled. I don't know, like it's impossible to say what would have happened if I hit the wall, but I'm thinking about that. And I went home after that trip and I'm just at home, like not necessarily jumping every day, but thinking about that a lot and re-watching the video and like having sleepless nights about it and really appreciating all the things that I had at home and playing with my dog and seeing friends that, had, that don't care about it at all and things like that. And then hearing that same thing happened to somebody else and he actually died. Yeah, it was just uh, it was a huge one, huge one for me. And it's and it's so it's so weird to say that it it had such an impact on me from so early on, and it's still something I think about regularly. And I show the video to a lot of my students as well. So,
0: so that wake up call, did that change your approach to base jumping? It seems like your mindset changed, but did you also follow that up with uh, a change in your methodology? Did you go from uh, just wanting to interact and experience base jumping to something else?
1: Yeah, so like what I said um, when I was kind of just checking boxes, going to speak, so I'd say there's a lot of people that kind of, they call it, say, um, goal-orientated versus process-orientated. And people who are more goal-orientated are heavily focused on the end result and people who are more process orientated are not necessarily outcome focused. They tend to prioritize the journey towards the goal. So during that period of time, I was like, started to appreciate life a lot more and saying, holy shit, like just jumping off the bridge was amazing. And getting to do a jump off this antenna was amazing. And it's not, you're not always just constantly seeking for that next thing or oh, now I have to do a gainer. Now I have to do a double gainer like constantly chasing your tail, essentially. So it forced me to come back and just say, oh, what we're doing when we're doing the most basic stuff, it's still in this tiny percentile of humanity that most people in the world will never experience even once, even doing something that's so basic. So it caused me to take a step back and really kind of appreciate the moments a lot more and not necessarily give myself any, uh, end point that I was seeking. I think I just kind yeah.
0: Of- no, that totally answers the question, and it it's it kind of exemplifies not only a step back, but a step forward in a different direction. Like you're changing pathways entirely. And I'm kind of curious. Like, can you describe those two different pathways uh, a little more visually for people? Like, does a does a goal oriented path lead inexorably to some unintended consequence? or negative consequence, does process orientation lead us towards some, uh, end state that looked a little more enticing to you?
1: Yeah. So when you, when people are more goal orient, orientated, I feel like once you check the box of accomplishing whatever it is that you say you want to do, the next box just becomes apparent to you. And then Like what I had said earlier is you just end up chasing your tail constantly. So say you can do it, the process with aerials here at the bridge, or you can say, I just want to go to Europe and track. And then as soon as you do a uh, a trip with that, you want to fly a onesie. And then as soon as you fly a onesie, you want to fly a wingsuit. And then when you fly a wingsuit, you want a bigger suit. And then you want to do exits with shorter starts and bigger hikes. And it's good to have goals and direction and things that you're working towards, but if you're so focused on those things that you actually lose sight of where you're at and you're not actually enjoying the process, enjoying the process, so to speak, you tend to skip over those things very, very quickly. And because all you're focused on is checking that box. It's not necessarily when you get to that box, you're executing so clean and so nice that it's almost like you just naturally flow past it. Whereas when you're focused on the process of things, I feel like you're fully enjoying the journey and knowing that the boxes will get checked as you continue down the path, but it doesn't necessarily matter. And I guess my focus shifted a lot towards the things that I am doing. I want to do them. I want to make extremely simple things look very easy and effort, effortless almost. And that kind of goes through how you learn things and how you kind of, apply the things that you've learned in order to allow them to look easy. That makes total sense. So, you know, if you're a box checker, if you're
0: goal oriented, you might end up in a very uh, extreme situation doing something that is incredibly complicated, but you basically have only met the minimum criteria to be there. And so you're in a very dangerous situation. Yeah. versus somebody that's process oriented is is going to fill that entire box to the hilt and then they won't really arrive at the next uh situation, the next danger zone until it kind of presents itself to them having already stepped above everything else below it. And so they might uh not progress as fast as somebody that's uh box checking objectively like they're not doing as complicated things, but they're doing those, uh, things with much more precision.
1: Exactly. And when you say that, like prog- not progressing as fast, when people can understand that there's no place to get to, like there's no end point with this. Like whenever you come into it, you can continue to move forward and make things more complicated infinitely. And I think that comes back to, to trying to say, um, I would say, ultimately, my main goal now with base jumping is to attempt to master it. And there's this uh, sports psychologist. I think he's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy. His name is Chris Maticas. And he said something like, uh, mastery lies on an infinite continuum. As a result, we will never reach the end. And the idea with that is, say, I want to be able to do this thing perfectly and effortlessly and Almost like the end of Mortal Kombat when you finish when you finish somebody without getting a scratch on you, and the guy goes, Flawless victory. victory. <laughs> yeah. And you're trying to avoid the fatality, obviously, you know. But in situations like that, you can be the quest is to do it perfect, and you understand that perfection is not possible. Because even in even in a case of like if I was doing anything and Even if somebody was to tell me something was perfect, I would still probably pick a hole in it just because I don't ever want to get to the point of, I'm perfect and that was flawless and I couldn't have done anything better in that situation. you know. And it's not a case of not enjoying it or not having fun or uh, being excited about something happening, but I never want to get to that point of feeling like nothing can be improved upon because I feel like when that does happen, if that happens to certain people, that puts you in a very dangerous situation.
0: Yeah, okay. So, uh let me further ex- uh, describe what I'm understanding. Uh goal orientation is measured on a binary level. You either did or didn't do it. And uh process orientation is measured on an infinite scale where you can never really attain uh perfection. You can only continue to move yourself up that infinite scale of uh of execution
1: exactly and like yeah the good the goal is perfection but there's a deeper part of you that understands you'll never actually get there and it's the it's so cliche to say but it's like it's all about the journey and there's another cool quote that somebody had said something like uh do you do you actually like climbing or do you just envision the summit Yeah, And I'm not a climber, just to clarify (laughs) at the start, but I just love the grind. Like I love being a student and feeling like I'm always learning and uh, feeling like I'm on the path and I'm never going to actually reach the end end of it.
0: Well, let's talk about the grind for a bit uh, and let's take this a little more practical. Uh, So along the mastery path, um, I know that you have put in a lot of training and you also come from a background where training is everything. Uh, can you give us some insights into what your training looked like after that wake-up moment and what you believe in training in general in base jumping? Because I know that you've got some strong opinions about that as well.
1: Yeah, 100%. So, I mean, um, again, I love quotes and saying things that other people have said because they can always say it. Uh, people have always said things way better than I can explain them. And for that one, there's um, Bruce Lee had once said something like, In athletics, too much time is spent on the development of skill and not enough on the development of the individual for participation. And while, like when you look at any athletic pursuit, athletes spend way more time in the gym preparing than they actually do on the field or in the ring competing. And I don't necessarily view base jumping as a sport, so to speak, because when when you think of sports, I think of... Competitions, winners, losers, that sort of thing. And for us, winning just means surviving. So I don't really think it's an act. It's very accurate to kind of put it in that box. For me, it's more of a, an art, an artistic pursuit in a way, kind of more akin to like a martial art or playing music or. Of course, and going back to the Turbo Lensa guys that were part of your inspiration, those guys are performance artists, one hundred percent. Hundred percent, yeah. So even though. I don't necessarily view it as a sport given my background i kind of try to approach it from a sporting mindset and when you're going out when people are just going out and they're always doing gnarly things or they're always just like testing themselves and they're always have to do something more complicated i feel like you if you switch your mindset into a sense of train 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 compete or test yourself come back to training and just continue in cycles like that, that you can do this for a very long time relatively safely, and you can never make it 100% safe, and you can never take away all of the risks. But uh, I put a heavy emphasis on training and the development of the person as well, and that doesn't necessarily have to, say, um, be just jumping focused, because your training can have many other factors that goes into it to so say you're just working out and being healthy more eating good food and uh, like stretching like th- lots of things that have benefits to your life as a whole in general can have translations into into base jumping as well you know it doesn't have to just be oh i have to go to the bridge three times a year because i have to get my training in or things like that you know so
0: So what do you believe of uh, people who enter the sport completely out of shape? Because I'll admit that uh, after I got into skydiving, I got in the worst shape of my life.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because you don't, I mean, all you have to do is climb into the plane and fall out the door, you know, like you you really don't need to be athletic at all to be a skydiver. It's helpful for sure if you want to learn stuff. So, I mean, for anyone that is getting into base jumping and they're not in very good shape, I would just say... There's nothing wrong with that, but it's going to limit a lot of the things that you can do. Like you're not going to be able to climb 2000 foot towers. And if you are like, maybe the guys that you're going with don't want to wait for you. Or you're not going to be able to go on two three hour hikes. You're just go- you're going to be limited by the objects you can jump and who you can jump them with if yeah. you are not in shape.
0: Or you're going to end up at the exit point completely gassed.
1: Exactly wrecked. Like I've I have been in situations where I've been taking people to to jumps and they're throwing up halfway through the hike and I'll give them the out like give them the opportunity to go back or they get there and you can see that their eyes are glazed over and they're just not focused and they're they're not in a safe headspace. You know so. There's a tremendous amount of benefit to having yourself be in in good physical condition coming into it, aside from the development of the actual skills that you need to fly parachutes.
0: So let's talk about some of those skills. Give us some of the training involved in the basic skills for base jumping. You know, are, are all of those attained by base jumping or are some of them available elsewhere? And then once we are in the base environment, what kind of specific training regiment do you subscribe to or what did you do yourself?
1: I guess I'll, I may end up contradicting myself a little bit here because when you are looking to improve a specific skill, you almost have to have the goal, the end goal in mind. And then it might, you might say that it's more goal oriented versus process orientated. So when you're in a learning environment and you do have uh, a particular skill set, say that you're trying to improve upon, you kind of have to hone in and focus on that. And it does become very goal specific. So, when you're working on something yourself, you kind of, first of all, you have to expose a certain weakness that needs to be developed because within base as well, we can all say, oh, we're moving through this and living in the moment and like just trying to survive and all of that kind of stuff. But there are things that are very benef- beneficial skills to have that will keep you safe. Can you give us an example? So uh, being accurate on landing would be uh, a great thing. Okay. And how does one expose that weakness? (laughs) So say we are going to do a jump and I'll say, okay, we're going to do this jump, fly a right-hand pattern, land into wind on the target. That one might be a very simple explanation of what we're going to do. And a lot of things have to happen between the point your feet leave the object and your feet touch down uh, in the center of the target. So. In a, in a situation like that, if you have somebody doing it, say, okay, just go and do this. And this is assuming, like, let's just assume that this person is relatively experienced. They want to improve their accuracy. Watch them do the jump. And then you might notice they're spending the entire flight in full flight and they end up overshooting the target and they're making all their turns from full flight, real deep toggle turns, like getting a lot of uh, surge in the canopy as they do come out of the turns and they end up overshooting. And then you might, or the person might be the opposite and they're flying in two deep breaks and they end up coming up too short. So you would get them to, to do something and then you kind of expose what they're doing incorrectly or what could be done better. And then through, rep, through dedicated practice on that particular area, we can start to make changes and through repetition, eventually get them to the point that they're actually able to, to execute like automatically on the back end of it. Okay. So
0: holding yourself to a standard is step one. And then step two is a refinement of that particular weakness point. Can you give us like an idea of that progression? Like what does a training jump look like in its composition? I, I suspect that it's not as simple as just like jumping, looking at the target and trying to land on it every time. Like,
1: yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I mean, you can, you can really hone in and it's very uh, individual, I would say, because you can look at Every, everything that somebody does from the moment that they begin the climb over on the rail to the moment their canopy hits the ground on the bottom end. And there's so many things that happen like through that, in that let's say the person was free-falling and maybe a 30-second uh, process that some of the things they're doing essentially without thinking about them and they're doing them very fluidly and some of them are very deliberate and they're very uh, nervous about certain aspects of it and you almost have to see somebody go through that whole routine to be able to identify weaknesses or things that they can do better and in the be- in the beginning stage so let's say I have a student that comes out and they haven't done any base jumping and they've just told me what their experience level is and I haven't seen them fly a parachute or anything a lot of times it's just a case of we'll do a full site evaluation talk about the the conditions give them an outline of what I want them to do every, everything like that and I will basically tell them everything that I want them to do from the moment they push off, how they're going to push off to where they land. We'll talk about canopy flight, flaring the canopy, how it's different to skydiving, all of that sort of stuff. But I can't really break it down and make it very individual until I actually see them execute something first, because some things they might be doing really well and other things they might be doing poorly. And by watching them do something first, it will expose the area that they need to work on. And then then on the next jump, we can come up and say, you did these things well. This is the area that I really want you to hone in on and focus on. And then once that gets good, we can begin their progression through different deployment methods, different types of canopy flight, everything. So, okay. So step one is identify weakness. Step
0: two, it seems is movement analysis, you know, and either done by somebody that's experienced or potentially done through analyzing video. I don't know if that's, uh, something that's incredibly helpful in the thing that we're talking about, but then the next question that I have is after you've analyzed movement, how many aspects would you, uh, recommend training on any individual jump? Because like, I I hear you say that like, there are so many things along that, uh, jumping, um, you know, line that end up with that person not landing on the target, you know, 30 different things, you know, after you identify them, does a training jump include trying to correct all 30 things all at once?
1: No, definitely not. Especially if somebody, uh, especially if somebody is very new, it's like one thing at a time. And so, which? How do you identify the one thing that you're gonna, you know, train on the next jump? Um, I would I would say it's kind of a triage effect. So let's say I mean, let's say somebody lands in the middle of the LZ, I'll say not on target, but they land safe, and there might be something like I don't think I think that you can push hard enough to get a little bit more separation. So that's the main thing we're going to focus on. Your canopy flight was great. Body position was good. You stayed symmetrical. I want you to push a little harder on the next one. And I'll just give them that one thing that I want them to focus on for this next one. Do everything else the same. Let's focus on this one aspect. And then if there are other things that have to be cleaned up, like how quick they release the toggles, or I see that they're releasing one toggle before the other, or they're, um, There's any number of things you can actually dial into and you can get so specific and so focused to make, to try to make this perfect picture of like execution that you're ultimately looking for at the end is like that perfect jump, but, um, you can't think about 30 things at once. So you need to expose that one thing, get them to focus on that. And then once they start doing it, like, let's say push really hard. And then on the next one, they start doing it and then you give them another reminder the one after that, and then you notice that they're just doing it consistently so you don't have to say it anymore.
0: And then even further than that, like if we've got an individual skill that we're trying to develop, like pushing harder and they can't uh, accomplish that in the base environment, would you then further break them down of like, okay, let's take this movement pattern and take it somewhere else. So we can do a hundred repetitions of that and then take it back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You can go, but you can go to a foam pit and get tons of repetitions like that. Or like there's, there's multiple things that you can take them out of the base environment if it's just not getting better. Or if you see huge limitations with uh, body position, I'll take them to the foam pit and try to drill it out of them because that's, that can be a thing as well. And uh, M- Mike Tyson was pretty famous for saying everybody has a game plan till they get punched in the face. <laughs> And they can be like, okay, I'm going to climb over the rail and I'm going to push really hard. And then they get over and they just do this like real lazy, casual, like step off, you know? So if somebody starts to do that a lot and you can, you can tend to see this with people who end up having lots of experience as they might've started doing something one way and they've actually got muscle memory of doing it consistently that way. And now it's kind of difficult to take a step back and undo it. So. I might be a little bit harder on people in the beginning with little things like that because I want them to have good habits right from the outset. As we're talking about these later stages of learning, is there anything
0: about your mindset that helps you refine these uh, skill sets and components?
1: Yeah, I guess. I mean, it might sound like a broken record in some aspect, and I think all of the the old heads tend to say in bass jumping. but the number one thing I would say is patience. Um being patient with it. And it's, it's a, a very difficult thing to instill, especially in younger people, it seems, in base, because when someone goes into, say you want to learn how to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you sign up and you say, I want a black belt. And the guy can stand there and say, it's going to, okay, sweet. Like you can get it, but it's going to take 10 years. And the people that sign up for it know right from the get-go that it's gonna take a very long time. Or you can go in and say, I wanna be a heart surgeon. And like, okay, you gotta get these degrees. You gotta like focus attentions on this and you gotta do like stints and learning about all these other things. And then eventually like you will get there. And no one is be like, oh, I wanna do surgery right now. Or a guy walks into the gym and says, oh, I think I can beat the black belt right now. Like it's very, the barriers for, for those things are very clearly defined and laid out but when people come into base jumping they're like i just want to wingsuit base jump and they feel like it's something that can be skipped and fast tracked and yes you can actually get there quite quickly if that's all that you're focused on but there's so much value in the like enjoying the journey like we we've been talking about already and just being being patient with the approach towards it and really kind of appreciating where you're at in the process and just allowing yourself to develop naturally and work on the skills and improve them and develop yourself and get really uh get tons of experience in different aspects of it find out the type of jumping that you really like so I mean when you first get into jumping the part that you're that you think is the one that you're going to do might end up being completely different like when I was beginning and I thought I was like urban jumping was the thing that was most attractive to me. I was like, I want to be sneaking into buildings and doing all this kind of stuff. And then after getting some exposure to different areas, I found that I really like being in the desert more than anything. And then my mindset shifted towards a lot of that. So I guess coming back to, I mean, it all kind of comes full circle again, of just trying to be as patient as possible, having goals, working towards them, but understanding and knowing that things take time and then appreciation for where you're at in the process, not necessarily being lazy or just saying like, oh, I love this so much. And all I ever have to do is get PCA'd off the bridge. And for some people, that's all they ever actually want. And that's totally fine as well. But so having having the patience to know that things are going to take time, appreciation for where you're at, and then having respect for the danger and the... Like how quickly things can actually turn around on you, I think is a a very important thing that I like to make aware of people. And I I feel like when, when my students do, when I do have students come through, I try to give them, I consciously try to give them a heavy balance of high fives and chest bumps as well as reality checks. And that comes from me telling stories about experiences with myself, situations with other people, showing them videos of accidents, different things like that, because I want them to, it's the whole coming back to blue skies, black death, you know, like sky above earth below, like that kind of mindset of like, there's some of the most amazing experiences that you will ever have. And you will go to the coolest places on earth and meet some of the coolest people, but you will also have some of the most horrific things happen to you, those that you care about as well. And I really try to hammer that home to people as well. I don't want them leaving like it's all sunshine and rainbows and I don't want them leaving thinking it's all death and destruction.
0: Yeah, it's all in balance.
1: Yeah. Everything everything is uh, has its polar opposite, right?
0: So we've got patience, appreciation, and respect as components of the mindset that allow us to get through these later stages of learning. Yeah. So uh, back to the end state goal of perfection, which we've argued back and forth many times about how this is possible, not possible. (laughs) And uh, ultimately where I arrive with you is like that a
1: lot of your jumping must seem unsatisfying. (laughs) (laughs) Not, not at all. Not at all. And that can be, yeah, I don't ever want to come across that way either because I'm loving every second of it as well you know man and some of my even my like just routine jumps of my my routine on a like assuming the weather is good and I'm in twin and I'm not uh working will be go out to the bridge and do two or three jumps every morning most of the time it's pretty early around sunrise and I don't see a soul and yeah some of that at like being down like the whole contrast of the noise of the bridge and the serenity of the valley and having that experience by myself like still fills me up so much and I love every piece of that just as much as I might be upset that I didn't hit the target like in a way, but I'm not actually angry or I'm not actually upset. I'm just like, ah, could be better. And it's it's always that little nudge of a, a gut check just being like, yeah, you didn't do it perfect, you know, and don't ever think that you did. And that's kind of just a sense of not allowing yourself to ever become complacent with it. And I feel like having that mindset has definitely saved me a lot and continues to save me and helps me make good decisions and not, not become cocky. So I can be very confident, but not cocky.
0: So while uh, your jumping might be imperfect in execution, could you say that it might be perfect in experience?
1: 100%. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it because I can leave and say, yeah, that was uh, the whole experience of that morning of going out and doing a couple of jumps and coming home and having a coffee and letting my dogs out and having breakfast with my wife. Like all of the, that can be the most perfect morning that I would ever ever envisioned like 10 years ago before I started jumping, you know, and now I get to do it like so often that it's, it feels like it's not real a lot of the time.
0: What does it feel like when you approach perfection and experience, like on a jump? Can you describe a, a jump that is um, near perfect?
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, you could say a jump that's near perfect. So when you come back and we look at all of those components, say pushing, pushing off, being symmetrical, taking a delay, good throw of the pilot chute, on-heading opening, clean release of the toggles, nice canopy flight, flat break turn, good, great timing on the sink surge, nailing center of the target. Like if you outline something like that, and that's such a very straightforward jump for say something like the bridge but if you can do all of that and have it happen then you can be like fuck I actually did all of those things together and you can you can turn what was once just climbing over the rail and your legs are shaking and you're grinding your head your legs against the rail and your grip so tight and then you can get to a point where you can actually pay attention to all of those aspects of it as you've kind of say approached more of a, um, unconscious competence level with something, all of those things will fluidly happen and you don't actually have to put so much energy or attention into any of those aspects. And you can land at the bottom and just take a deep breath and be like, fuck, that felt awesome. (laughs) So
0: what do you love most about jumping? The experience of it.
1: I guess I still look at it, I still look at it with a very much uh I guess I still look at jumping from an outside perspective in a sense as being it's just so unusual like what, like it's the the idea is still so foreign to me that we get to jump off something with a parachute experience what it feels like to have the speed build up and then have this magic device above your head that's going to help you get to the ground safely you know it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's. Yeah. A- and, and you
0: said that it's indescribable for people that have not like gone over the edge and done it, but I've heard you on previous occasions describe what it's like to be in that zone. Can you give us uh, a little bit about, you know, what it feels like for John to jump off of the bridge? Um, is there Something that happens to you in that moment that is different than when you're navigating your everyday world.
1: I would say the intensity of focus that base jumping transports you into almost immediately when you step off is so surreal in a sense as being it's crazy. Like to me, it's still it's still a crazy thing to. That how much information you can process in such a short period of time and how aware you can be of absolutely everything. It can be as subtle as something as you just notice the noise of the, the dirt releasing from your shoe as you push off or you feel your pins pop or you can actually hear your bridle feet out when you release it and just being so present in those moments and understanding how much is actually going on in just a couple of seconds it's, um, it's a a beautiful thing. And I mean, I've, I've gotten pretty close to having similar feelings at like the end of a yoga class or certain intimate moments with, with people. But Bayshoreming is, it's still the one thing that gives me that feeling that I just, that you can just immediately teleport into it. I've made jokes before saying it's a shortcut to enlightenment, you know? And I often have, uh, tourists at the bridge, especially saying when they'll see us packing, they'll say something like, that seems like a lot of work for just a couple of seconds. And I'm, I just think I don't usually respond to that one, but I'll be thinking to myself, like, those are the best seconds of the day, man. So yeah, as short as it is, it's very intense. And, um, yeah,
0: I absolutely love it. Also sounds like he almost said that it's better than sex.
1: i don't want to i don't want to get in trouble answering that one so i'll say no comment
0: (laughs) okay so it's it's the awareness then and in those couple seconds uh time the couple seconds that it takes doesn't really seem to matter does it i mean when you're in a state of total awareness it's almost infinite
1: yeah it's like it expands and slows down and it's uh yeah, it's a crazy thing. And I mean that's in, in Slider Down, it's still very quick and uh intense and everything happens very quickly and you have to make decisions very fast. And you like sometimes the game plan just goes like you can actually have everything is laid out, what you're gonna do, and then it completely changes. You have a 180 and all bets are off and you have to rely on something completely different. So um yeah, that's a being able to adapt to the moment is a is a huge thing with that as well.
0: Now, before we get too high order on the philosophical components of base jumping, I do want to get a bit practical with you uh, and talk about your profession. You chose to uh, educate base jumpers, and right off the bat, why did you trend towards that? Why not just continue on your own master's path? Like, what led you to want to get into education?
1: I think that it was. it's something that's kind of, I guess it's ingrained in me at this point, because I was in... I was, uh, a fitness coach and strength and conditioning and Olympic weightlifting. And I was coaching that for almost 12 years. So I think it was kind of, it's been naturally ingrained in me and a very long time ago, I kind of, uh, started having a personal affirmation or mantra, I guess, of I learn what I can and I share what I know. And I get a lot of value, I guess, out of trying to pass on things that I've learned and help people maybe not make the same mistakes that I did. And, um, I love being a part of that as well. Like I was saying earlier about sharing in the the stoke with somebody after they've just been PCA'd from the bridge. And it's even in skydiving, like sitting in the back of the plane watching tandems go at the door, like I'll never get tired of that. Like I love it because it transports me back to what I was thinking in that moment, you know. And I know that for most of humanity or most of the people doing a tandem skydive, that's a a one-in-a-lifetime experience. And I think it's really... Like when somebody is coming into base jumping, I really like to kind of provide a good place. Well, what I feel to be a good place for people to have an experience that's so unusual and so crazy and try to do it in a semi-controlled manner. And for, there are lots of people that end up coming through and taking um, introductory courses and they don't continue with it for whatever reason, but that those couple of days might be the peak of their the peak of the craziest things that they've ever done in their life. And I like, I guess selfishly, like I like being a part of that for people <laughs> and just kind of knowing that I, knowing that I helped f- facilitate somebody else kind of accomplishing some part of their dream in life, you know, so. Selfishly, you like to help others. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm getting some, it's not like I'm running a nonprofit or anything. Or I'm I trying mean, to, sure, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, uh, let's
0: talk about uh, the 33%. Or idea, because that is kind of like outside of the professional realm, but still still something that you subscribe to. Can you um, tell us what you mean with uh, that aspect?
1: Yeah. So this is, um, again, it's kind of another concept or model that I had heard somebody, I think it was a martial artist that was actually talking about this specific idea. And I've started to explain it a little bit to my students at the end of introductory courses mostly. And it's just kind of an idea of so it's called a thirty three percent rule. and it's a concept I've seen in across several different disciplines, like I was just saying. The idea is that in order to be truly well-rounded in something, you try and split your time into three three different areas. Spend thirty three percent of your time with those ahead of you so that you can continue learning and progressing. Spend 33% of your time with people at a similar level to you so that you can kind of feed off each other, have fun, and enjoy the journey together. And 33% of your time with those behind you so you're paying things forward. And I really like the idea of this. And while I don't think anybody will actually sit down and plan their schedule so that it's perfectly balanced, it's a great thing to just kind of keep in mind. And when we apply this to base, I tend to see issues arising uh, when people spend way too much time in one of those areas. So if all you ever do is take courses and get coaching, you can of end up leaning on others too much and never really finding your own feet, so to speak. And this can be dangerous because base is essentially all about taking 100% responsibility for everything. And in the, on the middle, if all you ever do is go to boogies, events, and take trips with your buddies, you can kind of get lost in thinking that it's all fun and games, and there's a lot of dangers associated with that as well. And on the bottom, if all you ever do is hang out with those, like behind you on the path, it can limit your own progression and give you a false, give you a false sense of security. And on the extreme end, you start to kind of think that you know everything. So there's traps and dangers associated with all of those things. So I think a good way to think about all of this is that if you're looking at your year, try and schedule like one, uh, one trip where you're dedicating or sorry, a trip where you're dedicating some time to each of those areas. So you do something where you're taking a course, getting coaching or guiding from somebody, uh, doing something that's gonna progress your skills and knowledge in some way. And in base, that doesn't necessarily have to be jumping focused. Like you might take a basic ropes course or something to do with first aid, rigging, any number of things. And then you take a trip with your, um, a fun related trip, let's say, with your buddies. So that's super easy to navigate. That's probably the easiest one. And then, spend some time with the new guys, like help a guy how to pack. And this this can even happen even if you have 50 base jumps or even if you've just come out and finished an FJC. Like you know a lot more than the guy at the drop zone who's just asking questions initially. So so yeah, that's the kind of the, the, the outline that I try to instill in people so that they don't get so caught up in just kind of chasing the dragon, so to speak, and they're constantly moving forward, constantly having to check boxes, and they're not just – Always having fun and always thinking that everything is a party. And then equally, they're not always just hanging out with the guy behind them because that holds themselves back. And even within that model, like I have to admit, like I spend a disproportionate amount of my own time with people who are, say, behind me on the path. And I would say my focus has shifted a lot in the sense as well as being now I kind of look at different aspects of refinement and teaching as I want to be the best coach and I want to be a master teacher and like I'm looking at things in that of how do I communicate better can I use better words to get my point across like always kind of navigating that every time I teach like they all they say when one people when one person teaches two people learn and I think that That's a huge area that's kind of overlooked, especially by experienced jumpers, because sometimes they can say, oh, well, I'm not getting anything out of helping this new guy. It makes me feel good. Sure. But what am I getting out of it? But even being able to articulate simple things and the basics, it kind of keeps those fresh in your mind, which will help you from making simple mistakes yourself as you get more experience and further down the road, so to speak. So,
0: Totally. Yeah, I mean you might have uh, gotten to an unconscious competence level and so explaining something to a new person is incredibly difficult and that explanation once you like you know drive it out of yourself might allow you to progress even further than you thought you could because now you're focusing on uh, other components that uh, before you articulated them were were not even in your awareness.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's a it's a great idea to just keep in mind of like progress, have fun and help those behind you, you know.
0: Yeah. And I also I agree with you. It's it's tough to make that balance like I spend a disproportionate amount of my time teaching and so I have to constantly remind myself to challenge myself or else my skill set starts to deteriorate because I spend all my time just explaining the, the basic concepts and, and kind of, you know, doing basic jumps. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm looking at my friends
1: doing these wildly complicated things. They're like, you want to come with us? And I'm like, I,
0: yeah, you know, yeah. not really, bro. <laughs>
1: yeah. And it, I guess once you step into the the world of being a teacher, there's uh it's good. Like for me, I try to keep a student mindset as much as possible. And for me, I went back to, so I stopped skydiving for several years. Cause I was so heavily just focused on slider down and When i had gotten into it i wasn't making a lot of money there's not a drop zone super close i was using the limited resources i did have for base jumping so that kind of got shelved for a while and then three years ago i started skydiving again started getting some coaching i was getting guiding in europe again last year and i have this like almost rebirth of everything is just fresh again in that world and uh, i'm super excited for the like i still i'm almost 10 years in now i feel like i'm just getting started so it's a it's a really cool thing as. I can actually feel like I'm properly navigating that model a little bit more of and it and it's still by no means splitting thirds into it but I'm making time for progression I make sure that I take at least a couple of trips with just friends every year and Helping those that are coming on the path behind me, so and uh,
0: just for the type A mathematicians that are listening to this uh what do you do with the last one percent
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did yeah, I did explain <laughs> that to uh to a class a few months ago, and I had one student ask me uh, what do I do with the other one percent and so I thought about switching the idea of just saying spend a third of your time this with this way just <laughs> to avoid that kind of thing, you know, but yeah, it's funny well uh, maybe maybe
0: uh maybe there's like a like a, a hooey way to tell them like, well, we spend that last 1% just being present with life.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that can even be, I mean, that can be a build on thing of thinking you can do stuff perfectly. Like you can have this, I have like a 15 minute laid out talk that I give to people with that. And I'm like, oh, this is so on point, And I used all the right words and I'm going to, everyone's going to love this. Yeah. And then I finish talking and
0: that, and that, that, that person that. says,
1: what about the other 1%? And you're like, <laughs> You're like, you, you just showed me that clearly it's not perfect. And clearly I could have explained that a little bit better, more specific to you. And it's a like teaching is a very dynamic thing and you have to be like a chameleon of sorts because you're dealing with very extroverted people, very introverted people, and trying to figure out a flow that will fit that person the best is uh, is a, a fun challenge for me. And I'm, I, I really like that aspect of it as I really don't know what I'm going to get until the person shows up. And sure, I've had conversations with them exchanged messages. And I guess I have some kind of an idea, but in terms of temperament and mentality and seeing how people deal with fear and how I can better communicate. And does this person need me to actually show them physically me doing it first, or do they need to get their hands in and get dirty? Or do they need to listen to me say certain words? And I, I love the the challenge of all that stuff. So, what if, uh,
0: what if you threw it back at that person and said, like, uh, question common wisdom, that's what you should be doing with the last 1%. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations.
1: Yeah, you passed. Congrats. Like here's, I should just give the person a black belt when they say that. Yeah. It's like, yeah, here you go. You've done it.
0: <laughs> so uh, now that we're on the topic of education, uh, I'd like to get your opinion on the lay of the land in base jumping when it comes to education. You've come from several other realms that educate people in different sport areas. What does base jumping look like to you?
1: Yeah, that's um, a very good question. I think that, so now it's very different than even 10 years ago when I was first looking at starting, but I think it's kind of, it's the best it's ever been, and it's also the worst it's ever been. So I guess to clarify those things, I think it's the best that it's ever been in terms of there's more knowledge available now than there ever has been. The equipment is better. There's more people doing it than ever before. There's more people teaching it than ever before there's lots of um site access and all of those kind of things i guess that doesn't come into the educational landscape but essentially we're now kind of at the point in base jumping where there are lots of or i wouldn't say lots but several people who have been so committed to it that they have they are able to dedicate their lives to it and actually make a living from teaching it and i think that that's an awesome thing because when somebody can You want these people, like if somebody loves something so much that they want to commit their life to it and they can be, like you want them to be rewarded for their effort so that they continue to be committed to it and they continue to be able to pass on that knowledge. And I think that that's a great thing because now you have a lot of people that are like at the top of the game or like the people with the most jumps in the world, like people like Miles and Sean. And people that have just like really made a high level name with themselves, like say Scotty Bob and wingsuiting. And then these people kind of reach a point in their own career and they turn around and they start passing on the knowledge. So in other activities, like we have mentioned Mike Tyson a couple of times, if you want to become a boxer, there's little to no chance of you ever going to a gym and he's going to be your trainer. But you can get the similar kind of caliber of person in base jumping to be the person that is like showing you how to set up a handheld for the first time so i think it's great in terms of um there's a lot more of that that kind of um in that kind of thing available now but it's also kind of the worst because with anything that is still very much in its infancy so base jumping is like 40 something years old and there's no regulatory board or Associa- like n- associations that are communicating with each other are setting standards for everything. So everyone kind of does things their own their own way. And essentially, I mean, all you have to do to be a bass instructor is convince somebody to give you money. And <laughs> like uh, like the reality of it, that's exactly what it is. You know, we have no accredit- accreditation or certification or have to pass any tests or anything like that. So when I say that it's also the worst that it's ever been, you do have people like that that just don't... Um, have any background in it and they're going out trying to, trying to essentially say, skip the steps of like putting in the grind or putting in the time and then coming out on the back end and trying to, um, trying to teach it, so.
0: So help us out a little bit. Uh, how do you tell the difference between Mike Tyson and some hobo at some random gym? How do you tell the difference between quality education and snake oil sales?
1: Yeah, so I mean, it's a very difficult thing to quantify I guess because what's good and what's bad will be different for to different people, you know. One guy he might be an amazing athlete but a terrible coach and another guy might be an amazing coach but a terrible athlete. And it's very difficult to differentiate between them because it's not like the best guys are on TV or <laughs> have these like <clears throat> high level celebrity presences, but first thing I would do is talk to lots of people and I wouldn't necessarily say like because bass drumming is such a small community, it's very easy to get an, an opinion on somebody by asking. If you ask five people about somebody, like see what kind of a reputation they have, would be um, a good start with it, and not necessarily. As well, like the the thing with courses and everything is that anytime somebody finishes a base course, assuming that they are uninjured it would be very unusual for somebody to come out after finishing their first weekend of base jumping and go, Oh my God, that sucked. We, (laughs) we did 10 jumps and they were all horrible. Like, you know, like, they're going to be stoked. Yeah. They're going to be so stoked. And it was like, that was the best experience of my life. It was so intense. It was so X, Y, Z, you know, they're going to sing you, sing your name from the rooftops regardless of what it is. So it's almost difficult to ask, um, ask the people who have come from a certain place. I'm sure that like, um, Well, positive
0: reviews are nice, but I'll agree with you. And I'll even go one step further of saying like, there were people on my course, uh, that came off having, you know, slight injuries, but they were still stoked. Yeah. You know, like, and I see that quite often, like, you know, people come out to the bridge, they make a mistake, you know, they end up with uh, some kind of injury, but they are still massively stoked. So like even those people yeah. <laughs> will be singing your phrases.
1: Yeah, no, for real. I mean, I guess this is kind of a difficult thing to figure out, but um, the, I would say the couple of red flags that I would say, if there is somebody that's out there looking to, to try to get into a course is how easy is it to actually register for? So if you can just go to somebody's website and click a button to pay a deposit without having to actually do anything, then maybe that person doesn't have your your personal best interest at heart. And maybe they're just like, I'm just trying to make money or something like that. Or even if you find someone on Facebook, let's say you doesn't even have a website, you just get somebody's name from, so oh, here's my buddy, he'll teach you or something like that. And the guy is just like, yep, here's the deposit link. And you don't even have to have a conversation. So like ease of access would be, one thing, you don't want it to be too easy. And for me, there was a lot of, I really, uh, I mean, I guess this might come back to process versus goal, but when I was first getting into it and I had read everything about, you need to do X amount of skydives, you need to really prepare for this. I was putting a lot of emphasis in the preparation for getting to into base jumping. And now looking back, I really appreciate the time I had of reading, talking to people, ground crewing for people, not wanting to to rush. And that, that made it very easy for me to get in with that crew versus the guy, like we had guys a few years later that would just show up in town and say, I just took an FJC, where's the, where's the objects? <laughs> and they did nothing, you know? So, um, so yeah, put in some work, like bass jumping is an incredible thing. You're going to have some of the most amazing experiences of your life. You can travel the world. You can do things that most people will never even, never even conceive of. So do a little bit of work for it and i would say when you're looking for a course do the same thing like spend a little bit of time if there's if there's five or six or however many people you're um thinking about doing it with give them a call have a conversation with them ask them some questions like see see if it sounds good to you or not because there are different coaches will resonate better with different people so and we all can't like i say about being a chameleon it's like I might say something to somebody 10 times and I'm like, this guy just can't get it. And then you might say something in three words and the guy's like, oh, Eureka, you know, I've got it. And it's not a case of like, I'm saying the wrong thing or it's just he might have vibed with you better or you had a better, better energy towards him or something like that, you know, so.
0: Totally agree. And let me double down on that statement and maybe give uh, some folks out there looking for their first jump course a bit of Teflon here the vast majority of us myself included john i'm including you here you're not wasting our time by having a conversation about getting into base jumping with us if it's if we're aligned with you and it's us then great but we enjoy having that conversation whether you go with us or not and so don't think that you're wasting your time talking to somebody that's trying to like teach base jumping, like have five different, have 10 different conversations with all of them and then make your decision, you know, with all the information possible, your life is on the line, you know?
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And most, I'd say most people that are doing it are willing to have that chat with you, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Put some time in it, is, it. Literally like your life is on the, is on the line. So you should feel comfortable with whoever you're coming out with. And yeah, how easy it is to get in front of that person is the first thing that I would kind of say. Another red flag that I would say is what kind of a schedule their course operates on. I know that, um, some people are very heavy on, on preparation that you have to do prior yeah, like you, you kind of fall in that category as well. as like you require, I would say, a lot more. You've such a high standard for what your students have to do prior to them getting started. Some people might just be like, show up at five p.m. on Friday, or meet me at the bridge, and they'll, uh, and that's as quick as things kind of can turn for them, you know. Um, and looking at the schedule is a is a huge thing as well. It was like is there flexibility in what you're going to end up doing? Or is it kind of like, this is what we're doing on day one. This is what we do on day two. And it's very regimented. So that can be quite difficult if you're coming through and the thing, everything is set because you're all individuals coming out for different reasons and you're different ages and you have different athletic backgrounds and you're doing it for different reasons. So I feel like having flexibility to be able to adapt that for people and to give them the best experience possible and not saying, you're in town, this is what we have to accomplish before you leave. And then if we don't, like, that's on you. Like, I'm going to do everything I can to get all these boxes checked. And if we leave and they're not done, that's going to be on you, you know? So I, I really, like, personally... I try not to set any expectations when people come out. I say that my goal is progress, and my goal is that you leave having learned something and you've inched the needle forward a little bit.
0: Even if they don't don't jump at
1: all. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Sometimes people will come out and they'll do two or three jumps and they feel good about it, and we end up sitting down and talking theory and other things and uh, for a long time, you know. So it's all it's all based on the on the person and. As another build on to that, I think the class size is very important because you can't, like, if there's five people, that's five people that are taking, you only have you know, like a hundred percent of your energy is being split up. So you can't watch a certain number of people or you can't give like a large group of people individual attention. And I know that it's one, one sense of when somebody is jumping, it's only one person's jumping at a time, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still very difficult to navigate. And then even in large groups, you have different types of personalities and same thing that I was just saying, age, athletic background, reasoning, why why they're there. So it's very, like if there's large groups, it's very difficult to kind of control and it kind of just becomes a logistical thing that you're trying to run versus it actually being, helping that person, that individual person progress and actually become a competent jumper, so.
0: Totally, and I've found that like, past a certain threshold, uh, group is, is important for reciprocal learning. You know, if you only have one person, like, yeah, you can give them all your attention, but they don't have the opportunity to learn from other people's mistakes. And then, like you said, if the group gets too big, now it's just logistics and it becomes like a very militaristic approach because you have to get all these people from point A to point B and it's go, 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 100%. not really like teaching them anything critically. You're just following a roadmap and a prescribed set of instructions and then you get out of that going like okay what next i haven't
1: really made any decisions for myself here yeah and the, and the herd mentality will take over you know and sometimes that can be a good thing because if you if you're like there's a fine line to walk between challenging you're challenging yourself and making sure you're facing your fears and trying to break down those barriers and another one of oh well that guy is going and i don't want to look like a pussy in front of him so i have to go too So you, and even if you try to make it known that you're not pressured to do anything, don't feel like you have to follow that guy. Even if you say all that stuff from the outset, they're still going to feel pressured. If one guy is like, I don't feel too good. I'm going to sit out. He's going to feel kind of weird about it, you know, or girl or whoever it ends up happening to be. So I like to, personally, I like to have small groups. So it's, there's less of that kind of a thing going on and you can actually give people more individualized attention and it's okay to, like if one person is moving to doing stowed and I think the other person needs to do a few more handhelds to become competent at it, they don't feel like there's a, a huge, like it's not one person being held back and four people have moved forward, you know, different things like that. So. Okay. So let me pack this up.
0: Uh, first of all, uh, as far as the educational landscape, it's the best of times and it's the worst of times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as far as like getting the best Experience the first thing that you advise is talk to many people who have gone through all of the courses, try and get a wide variety of opinions, um, and then second, talk to all of those people personally that are offering education and have a conversation with them. Uh, then, keeping an eye on the uh, class size, keeping an eye on the schedule that you're expected to maintain during, um, and Keeping an eye on the friction uh, that uh, you see getting into the course. If it's too easy, if somebody just hands you a loaded weapon and goes, "Yeah, let's do this thing," <laughs> yeah, then you should be concerned. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's yeah. that's an interesting. I, I You know, I want to center on that one just for a second because it's hard for a lot of us to not see that as somebody supporting us. You know, we want this thing, and they're like, "Of course." I will not gatekeep you at all. I will give you everything that you want right away. Instant gratification. And, you know, it's hard not to see that person as caring about you. But do they care about you?
1: Probably not.
0: Probably not. Yeah. Like, you know, all of my my healthy experiences that were extreme and emergent behavior came with explanation. They came with, you know, intention. They came with somebody dedicating themselves to preparing me for that thing and not just like tossing me into the fire unknowingly, um, you know, in that state of unconscious incompetence, because while I didn't know what I didn't know, that person definitely knew what I didn't know. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's a hard thing as well, man, because the to sit here and say, I make, I'm make i making a living from base jumping, from teaching base jumping as well, and to turn people away or to say, I don't think that we're a good fit for each other or not, or having a barrier for entry with certain, having certain requirements and everything. It's a weird thing because it's not like I want people to not base jump. It's just kind of a testimony to saying like, I'm not in it because I want your money in my pocket. Like I want things, I yeah. want like,
0: yeah, I don't want to waste your money or time. You know, it's not about uh, saying no, it's about saying yes to where you are currently. You know, and I, I don't think that that's inappropriate at all. Like, you know, that that does seem like a marker of somebody caring when you approach them and you say, Hey, like, you know, right off of AFF level one, let's say, which was me, like I was in, uh, Todd's office, AFF level one, <laughs> yo nice. dude, give yeah. me this base rig. right?" Nice. <laughs> and he's like, you know, we'll talk about base equipment. Cause that's where you're at. You know, you want to tour the factory, come on down, you know, and I'll talk to you about all this stuff. That's going to be helpful for you moving forward. And then, uh, you're going to go back and you're going to get an A license and you're going to go get some more skydives. And, you know, we'll continue to help you, but we're not just going to hand this over to you because we know that long-term that's not going to be healthy for you.
1: Yeah, and that's great. And it's it's always so um, nice to know that like people that are out there that are making a living from it and that they're like, they're literally trying to pay rent and keep a roof over their head. And in a sense, like they want your, your business, they want to be able to help you out, but they're also going to say, yeah, not yet. And it's not like either kind of a, a conversation with Scotty about this a few months ago when we were saying, it's not like, it's not like we gain anything from you going and getting more experienced or becoming more proficient at flying a parachute, you know, think, well, we do gain in the sense that we get a better student, but it's truly a case of, I don't want to drive you to the hospital. Yeah. Like, I don't want to have that on my conscience, number, number one, and I don't want that for you, number two either, you know, so... Yeah, yeah, just put in put in some work yourself and then come back. It's going to be here and it's going to be better and better. And as, as well, to come back and say like it's the worst that it's ever been as well, I think that when you, come, like I've come into it from a training background in say sports and athletics that have been trained for hundreds of years and uh, the ways to train for those things have been pretty well laid out. And I feel like base swimming is getting to the point now that things may actually start to develop a little bit where you can put some kind of standardization at least on the teaching end into things and it would be a huge benefit because now we're starting to see okay there's lots of people teaching first jump courses what do people do after the jump courses do they just finish and you have 15 jumps and now you're released into the wild and you go jump buildings so there's a whole hole in the game there or what am i do i just need 200 minimum skydives is that all i need I, it doesn't matter what i do i started swooping when i had 30 jumps like versus the guy who's flying boats, or he went and did crew for two hundred jumps, or different things. Like there's all these different, and it's like okay, there's a hole there, and what you can do in skydiving specifically to prepare for base jumping, and these things are starting to become known to us now, and more of the more of those holes will become exposed. The the more mature that base jumping becomes as we move down the path. So, I think it's a really exciting time. Yeah. Uh, I want to add one more aspect to,
0: uh, the piece that we were just talking about when it comes to, uh, telling people where they are sharing with, uh, people where they're at in, in terms of the progression. And, um, I think it's important for everybody to learn how to differentiate between somebody that is holding you back because you're threatening their ego And somebody that is slowing you down because they want you to succeed. Yeah. And those two can look very similar sometimes, but, uh, if you just spend a little bit more time talking to that person, you'll get a sense of exactly what they are trying to accomplish with you.
1: Yep. I think that's a
0: great point. So, okay, let's, uh, end the educational part of this, um, with maybe some advice for people who want to be on the master's path. Do you have any advice for folks that are not just trying to grip it and rip it, get their eyelids blown back, but actually want to be on a similar path as you?
1: Um... First thing, I guess, like, I mean, it all builds on everything we've just been talking about, but I guess the first thing I would say would be to keep an open mind and just stay curious because the moment that you feel like you know everything is the moment that you stop learning. And I think it was, uh, Socrates was famous for saying, true wisdom lies in knowing that you know nothing. And I think that that's a really powerful message. So that'd be, that'd be one thing. Okay. Um, was the, so maybe on something like if you're, as well as staying curious, if you think of, um, what was, oh, uh, rigidity is fragility and flexibility is formless. And when you can kind of understand the application of that concept, you'll be well on your way towards mastery. And I think that a lot of that, as like Bruce Lee had some stuff like, uh, the water becomes the cup like that, that, that kind of uh that kind of a thing or the value of a cup is its empty, emptiness or something like that so allowing yourself to be flexible and how you move around and how you shape to certain uh, scenarios and adapt yourself to situations versus being like this is it it has to be this way and i can only do it that way i think that that kind of an idea uh, can be very powerful also
0: yeah, I like that one, man. That one's great. I uh, in my later years of, of jumping, when I was actually doing complicated things, that's something that I tried to remind myself on exit points is like stay fluid, you know. Don't have expectation for what's about to happen. Be prepared for
1: everything. Yeah, and then that allows you to uh, to adapt, you know. So exactly. Wow, that's a great one. Okay. And um, the other, yeah, uh, this uh, the uh, thing that I. The thing that I love to say to people as well is that uh, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. (laughs) (laughs) So I had had read that one in a a skydiving book as well a very long time ago. And I often think of like in situations like when you're an early skydiver and somebody announces over the manifest, announces over the speaker saying, all A-licensed skydivers cannot jump in these winds. And I think in a way that's good because they're like, you don't have the experience to handle the current situation. But in another sense, you almost have to allow people to find where their limits are. So that instead of, if you're always relying on somebody else to kind of stand over you and say, this isn't appropriate for you yet, so let's just stay here. And you don't ever have the opportunity to actually push the boundary a little and find that limit. And of course, there's going to be scenarios where you like don't jump a cliff in a headwind is a really good thing, <laughs> thing to say to somebody, uh, but, or a parameter to set on somebody. I'm like, you don't ever have to actually do that one. Like don't ever kind of test the limits on that yeah. because you could have a very bad day, but you do have to kind of stumble and make mistakes and put yourself in scenarios maybe that you're not ready for to get those occasional gut checks to find out where is too, where the line is for yourself. So I think that's a really good one to... uh
0: I like that one. And along the lines of learning from bad judgment, there's honesty there. Like you have to admit your mistakes early and often for that one actually to, you know, bear fruit.
1: Yeah. And that comes back to even in the 33% rule, if you're always just relying on coaches and just taking courses and you're always in that kind of semi-controlled environment you'll never kind of get the opportunity to make mistakes or at least they're they're buffering as many of them as they possibly can but when you go out with your buddy who has the same number of jumps with you you're more likely to overlook things and do things like that and you're like holy shit like this just happened like let's make sure that never happens again and that can almost have more more uh like more of a, a grounding effect on you than anything else somebody else could ever say to you so <sighs>
0: Okay. Those are three really solid pieces of advice uh, for people wanting to be on the path with you. Um, And on the flip side, do you have any advice for people who have chosen the unsustainable path, maybe unknowingly even? Because there are a lot of people that, again, don't know what they don't know. And there are a lot of people that do know what they don't know, but choose to be on an unsustainable path either. And those are some pretty hard people to reach as well.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's, there's, I've met, I mean, lots of those people over the years, and it's, um, there's not really any advice I can give to somebody who's on what I would call an unsustainable path because I feel like people who are on a path like that are very re- resistant to advice a lot of the time. All I really have for them, especially if they're my friends, is usually a hug and a hope that they ask themselves a little bit more why they're doing what they're doing. And I hope that they make it through the fire because I've, I've known a lot of people that have been riding that edge for a long time and then they might get the gut check and then they dial it back and then they're like, holy fuck, I'm, I'm stoked I actually made it through that. And then other people that you can see it coming and then it happens and you're just like, fuck, like I saw it coming and you can't do anything about it. So it's it's um it's a hard one. Yeah, it's really, really difficult.
0: So that sounds like advice to basically the rest of us of like. You know, if you see somebody on an unsustainable path, just go and try and love that person a little bit.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think that with like, like when we were talking earlier about saying you can do everything right and still get fucked. Yeah. that um, It's like every year we still have people going in from making extremely basic rigging errors or overlooking something on one end of things. And then people on the other end that are pushing the limits of what's possible and everything in between, you know, so I'm not saying that I have the golden ticket to the to the way to move forward or somebody else is doing it wrong or anything like that, because we're, none of us are safe at the end of the day. And that's a, a, a title that none of us can ever kind of hold above our heads and say this, but I feel like um, you can definitely approach it with the mindset of trying to figure all of that stuff out and be careful as possible. And deliberate in your, in what you're doing. And hopefully that will, uh, allow you to do this, do it for a very long time.
0: And you've been doing it for a pretty long time. And so rounding out our conversation, I want to ask what has base given you in that time?
1: Oh man. Uh, base has given me literally everything. Like even, even now to be say approaching 10 years in it, it's still what I think about the most. What I like to talk about the most. It's what I like to do the most. It's how I make money. It's what I spend my money on. It's how I met my wife. Like it's literally, it's literally everything to me. So it's uh, it's hard. It's very now, especially like when we were talking about the health stuff before. It's very even if the, uh, even if the day came where I was unable to jump physically myself, I think that I would be able to find some purpose in the community in some capacity. Of doing something and I would create some space that I could still get fulfillment out of it. So
0: well, uh then leading on to that, what are you doing now?
1: Um, so at the moment, like things are kind of there's some stuff going on with the L thing, like we had talked about as well, and that's going to take me through the end of the year. But um, my wife and I are actually moving to Italy next year, so at the end of either December or January. So we got a uh, three unit apartment building that's five minutes from the LZ at Brento.
0: Nice. And, uh,
1: yeah, going to live in one apartment and like run a guest house out of the other two for, for jumpers. So that's going to be the, the, the new chapter.
0: So you're going to be running a base house also providing instruction out there?
1: Uh, eventually. Yeah. I, I think the, the priority in the beginning will be to get the accommodation thing set up and kind of create a, a place where, um, jumpers can kind of hang out and just kind of be over there. I had ran a hostel here in 20 years back and that was, um, Uh, what I did initially when I get over but I think based in like I'm very excited for the full immersion and new chapter for myself being in the terminal environment seeing as I've spent so much time in the slider down environment now like I said a while ago I was like I still feel like uh, I feel like a student all over again you know I have this whole new world to explore and all these things to learn and I'm very very excited about it but just given my nature I feel like I'll naturally kind of slide into into that role as we go on and Uh, yeah we're both really excited about it like we both love italy my wife speaks italian her grandfather was born in rome and um we're both really really excited to to go over and kind of start that new chapter and i have to give her credit where credit is due for it as like this whole project would never have happened if it wasn't for her we had she found the property she did all the communication with the owner she speaks italian so that was very helpful and there was so many roadblocks on the way of trying to get a mortgage in a different country and all these unforeseen things that popped up that she was just, just kept I I was saying, we don't have to, like, it doesn't have to be this difficult or anything. And she made it happen, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Difficulty
0: uh, really doesn't, uh, doesn't matter to Sequoia. She She is just an absolute
1: crusher. She rises to the occasion. (laughs) (laughs) I would say 100%. So if anybody is um, interested in keeping up to date with how that's progressing, uh, you can go to base grotto, G R O T T O com and it's just a landing page at the moment. You can plug your email in there and we'll send out updates as we get closer to the time. So And then
0: how do people find you if they want to continue conversations about base jumping or get you for some education? Where are you available?
1: Uh, my training website is baseguiding.com. So my phone number and email are listed on there and just some information about the different things I, I do. So very easy to get a hold of me. Nice. And is base gear coming with you to Italy? In some capacity. I've I've kind of been... Like trying to figure out the best way to navigate that. So, I mean, all my business has been in the U.S. and kind of slider down focused with the kind of equipment that I carry. So, um, we'll we'll see. We'll kind of I'm just going to play that one by ear.
0: Cool. Well, in the meantime, uh, all the best, and please send your wishes to John in his uh, road to recovery health wise. Um, thanks for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thank you so much, dude. I think this is a great thing that you're doing, and it's really good to sit down and get some, uh, a lot of this kind of backroom chat out of the way. I think it's a a really cool thing to have more long form conversations with people. And I love listening to the show, so I'm honored to be on it.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts about what you've just heard, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Big shout out to Mark Stockwell, our sound engineer and co-producer. We love you, and we couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website, exitpointpodcast.com. Until next time, take care. And for everyone jumping out there, fly fast, have a blast, and don't make it your last.